You're listening to a message from Victory Christian Center in Farmer City, Illinois. For more information on Victory, please contact us at bccfarmercity.org. Anyway, welcome to church this morning. Um, if you brought your Bible, we're going to begin in 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll be jumping around a little bit, but we'll start in 1 Peter 3. I want to continue the series we started last week. Um, I believe we've opened a topic that all I can say is I feel like it's not talked about enough. I don't know that we have the greatest revelation yet as the body of Christ that we could on this topic. I cannot sit here and say, pastors don't preach it enough. How would I know that? I don't know what pastors are teaching all over the, the city, let alone the nation or the world, and it's not my job to police that. But it it feels like, you know, when I kind of listen to the, dare I say, the preachers on TV or the preachers on the radio, or if I just kind of see what's out there, I don't see this topic a whole lot. It's there. But I think there's more to it than I, than we've really grasped. And uh, if you weren't here last week or you're really wondering where I'm going, we're talking about peace. I want to talk about the peace of God this morning. So I'm going to jump into 1 Peter 3. Let me say this before we read it, because I always emphasize context. If you want to know what a verse is talking about, look at the verses before and after it. What's the context? That's one of the most important layers of any passage. In this particular passage, he's talking to the wives. And he's talking about that even if you've got a, can I say, a booger of a husband who isn't living like he should for God, that a wife by her godly conduct can turn a husband toward God. And you can read that for yourself. That's kind of what he's talking about. But as we read it this morning, I want to say what he's saying to the women um, applies to the men, too. Now, maybe he's trying to make a point, but all of us would benefit from listening to what Peter's saying. So I just want to jump into what he's saying and recognize, take just one step back, and he's talking to all of us. So let's read it with that understanding. First uh, Peter 3, verse 3, he says, Do not let your adornment be merely outward. And then he gives you an example, arranging the hair, wearing gold, putting on fine apparel. He says in verse 4, rather let it, and what's it? Your adornment, how you present yourself. Let your adornment be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. So in this passage, he's talking about adorning. How do you adorn yourself? And he gave some examples of external adorning, but then he also talked about internal adorning. That's not a word we use a whole lot, but what is adorning? If you look it up in Vine's New Testament Dictionary, it says that word adorning means a harmonious arrangement or order. A harmonious arrangement or a harmonious order. Um, Dr. Kenneth Wiest says it's an ordered system, namely a system where order prevails. So notice the emphasis in this adorning is a right order. And actually, the opposite, the antonym of that Greek word is the word chaos. It would be where things are not in right order. So the emphasis is getting everything in right order. 
And he said, there's things we do. Now, on the outside, there's things we do to get ourselves in right order. And he gives you examples. It's the the uh, arranging of your hair, which varies from person to person. Um, the putting on of gold jewelry or other adorning, you know, jewelry type things. Um, fine apparel. And, and I just want to point out, he's not saying those are bad things. I've seen people take this verse and try to say you shouldn't do any of those things and come up with weird rules like don't wear jewelry or... You know, don't do your hair up like that. And I'm thinking, well, then don't stop there. Don't put on apparel. I mean, where do you draw the line? That's not his point. His point is it's okay to do those external things. And I recommend and even thank you for doing those things this morning. I'm glad you took a few extra minutes to brush the hair and put on something nice. Nothing wrong with that. It's about which one's more important. What's the more important thing here? In, in essence, he's saying if you haven't given the same attention to the inside, then you're not properly adorned. You're not in right order. There's an internal element to getting in a harmonious arrangement of you, of getting you in right order. So he, he turns into the inside. What does he say? Let it be um, the hidden person of the heart. And then he gives us the example with the incorruptible beauty, just as you're making yourself beautiful on the outside, you can make yourself beautiful on the inside. He says with a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, gentle, we probably talk about more. In fact, around here, we talk about often. That word gentle means meek. Or humble. And I don't usually skip opportunities to talk about pride and humility because they're so huge in Scripture. And so that one we've hit. It's the other one I don't think we've talked about a lot. It's that word quiet. Um, the word quiet in Strong's Concordance, it says, keeping one's seat or one's inner man sedentary, still, undisturbed, peaceable, and quiet. I'm going back again to Vine's dictionary. It says that word is tranquility arising from within. It's a tranquility from the inside. Um, let's put the Amplified translation on the screen of that verse 4. But let it be the inward adorning and beauty of the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible and unfading charm of a gentle and peaceful spirit, which is not anxious or wrought up, but is very precious in the sight of God. So one of the most important qualities, because there were the two given, humility is a big one, but he also added Quiet, peaceful. It's a quality of the inner man. Tranqu tranquility. Tranquility arising from within. Um, now, if we connect that to one of the verses we looked at last week, which was Jesus in John fourteen twenty seven, He said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. Now, he made it a command. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let it be afraid. Now, the reality is things happen in life where you're tempted to do just that. And he's telling us, don't let it. 
Don't let fear enter your heart. Don't let yourself get worked up. Um, And then notice Peter said, when your inner man is in a state of humility, in a state of peace, that it is precious in the sight of God. Now, I'll talk about this maybe more in a moment, but it's kind of like you spend all that time making the outside presentable to look good for us. But if you'll spend that kind of time making the inside look beautiful, guess who you're good looking to? You're good looking to him. We may or may not notice everything you did on the inside. We probably will eventually, but that's what he sees. And again, nothing wrong with doing the hair and makeup and jewelry and all that. Nothing wrong with that. But don't forget the inside. There's someone else looking at your inside. So we might more readily recognize the humility characteristic. Because when it comes to you working with God, and you being attractive to God, and you being precious to God, one of the aspects of that is not just that you look good to Him, but that He can work with you. That He can work in you, and likewise that He can work through you. So if we look at that first element that I'm not spending a lot of time on today, the humility element, that might seem obvious. Because we know, I believe it was in James, where he said that God resists the proud, but he gives more grace to the humble. Remember that verse? That he actually, if you have pride on the inside, it's not that he just doesn't. He resists you. Um, as the Weiss translation says, he is dressed in battle ray against you. That he does not tolerate pride. On the other hand, when you approach him in humility, not just grace, more grace. Well, that, one, that one's easy. But what about this peace thing? Could it likewise be said that when you are a peaceful in your spirit, He can now work with you. But when you're wound up and full of fear and chaotic in your spirit, then it's a similar reaction. He now takes a step back. That's not appealing to him. That's not something he can work with or work through. God is a God of peace. It's one of his characteristics. Um, Isaiah calls Jesus the Prince of Peace. And then Jesus has given his peace to us. Um, I'll throw out another quick one. This isn't my strongest point, but it is interesting. In the name of the city of Jerusalem. What does Jerusalem mean? How does that translate into English? The most common translation is city of peace. How ironic. (laughs) In today's world, (laughs) it's anything but. But that's what the name means. It's also a cup of trembling, and that's scriptural. But the name means city of peace. Um, Salem and Shalom are two Hebrew words that come from the same root, and they both carry the meaning of peace. So anyway, God is a God of peace. And when he finds a person walking in peace, he can work with that person, in that person, and through that person. So I want to talk a little bit about peace. Is there a side to peace that maybe we've not seen? Can I say, peace isn't getting the respect it deserves? (laughs) Can I say it that way? When we think about peace, or if you think about not just peace, but as a descriptor of a person, then what do you think of? Well, they're such a peaceful person. Maybe they're quiet. Maybe they're just quiet-natured. They don't get 
wound up or wrapped up on too many things, you know. You might even think they're just a kind person. Maybe they're a sweet person. Or maybe you can even go far enough to say, well, that you start throwing out the word pacifist. It's connected to the word peace. You might even begin to think, well, yeah, they're a real peaceful person, but, you know, they're kind of weak. You know, they're, they're, they're just going to, they're a pushover. They're not a strong person. Now, maybe you do, or maybe you don't connect the dots there off the word peace, but is that accurate? What qualities does peace have in Scripture? There's something I want to look up. Here's an interesting one. I won't stay here long, but in the Apostle Paul's closing in the book of Romans, this is not the last verse literally, but he is winding up the book of Romans. He's in chapter 16, and in verse 20 he says this. Look at this. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. And I'm thinking to myself, if I were writing that letter and I was going to talk about how God is going to crush Satan under your feet or under my feet, I don't think peace is the word I would have used. Maybe the God of power is going to crush Satan. And to me, that seems better, you know, or the, the God of miracles, the God of might. Or even might, some may want to say the God of dominion or the God of sovereignty is going to crush Satan. No, what did he say? He said the God of peace. It's that part of God. God in his characteristic as the God of peace. It's in that way we view him that he's going to crush Satan under your feet. How does that fit? Maybe peace is not as weak as we kind of thought it was. You might be thinking, well, as you thought it was. <laughs> I don't know. But bear with me. Let me give you another example. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Um, he says in this verse, and let me give me a little bit of a setup then. In Ephesians chapter 4, he's talking about the church. Um, it's in this chapter where he says, and God has gi or given gifts to the church, the fivefold ministry gifts, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. He's talking about the importance of the body in this chapter. And where we're getting ready to read, he is talking about the importance of the body of Christ operating in unity and the importance of how we walk in love with one another. And that we walk as a unified body. That's, unity is a theme in this chapter. So that's kind of where we're picking up Ephesians 4 verse 1. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. So in this whole passage, you see, it's the importance of us walking in love with each other. And he said it right there with long suffering and talking about us living life with each other. There's sometimes some long suffering. Why? Because we're barren with one another. Now we do it in love, but we're barren. There are times when there are things about you that might rub someone else. There are things about me that would rub some of you. None of us are perfect yet. None of us have arrived. 
we all have good sides and we all have those sides of us we're still working on. And we all recognize that. So if we're walking in love and because we love each other, we bear with some things. Sometimes your rough edges show. Do I point them out and make a big deal? No, I just bear with you. And I love you. I'll help you cover that back up. Why? We're just... We're growing. We're growing. But that's all part of protecting the body, protecting each other in love. Welcome to a family. That's what we do. But now he gives us a big clue as to how we do that. Look at verse 3. As he had a comma at the end of verse 2, he wasn't done. Endeavoring, this is why we do it, to keep the unity of the Spirit. Did you know, many times when we overlook natural things in love for the sake of unity, we're protecting spiritual unity? There are times that when we choose to love each other in the natural, we're actually opening the door in the Spirit for God to do things that otherwise He couldn't if we were all offended and mad at each other. It's in here. But I want to go to the next part. We are endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now hold that thought and I'll come right back to it. He's talking about the bond of peace. I want to talk about glue for a moment. So let's say you want to glue two things together because you're trying to keep them together. So if you are wanting to glue wood to wood, do you grab just any glue you can find? No, there's a specific glue for wood. Um, You may need to write this down. They call it wood glue. (laughs) I'm being obnoxious. Don't write it down. If you want to glue wood to wood, go get wood glue. If you want to glue concrete or masonry, brick, they make an adhesive for that that would work good in concrete or brick. If you want to glue foam to foam, they make a glue for that. If you want to glue cloth or fabric, they make a glue for that. If you want to glue your finger to your other finger, they make a glue for that. It's called super glue. (laughs) And that is actually what they were trying to come up with when they invented super glue. They were working on something. I, I got several in the medical field. Correct me if I'm wrong. They wanted an alternative to stitches and all that kind of stuff. And they found something that makes skin stick to skin really well. Turns out it has a bunch of other uses. And how many of you have glued your fingers together? <laughs> Nail polish remover. It's the anti-super glue. Anyway, in this passage, he's talking about keeping unity. Now, he's not saying use super glue. If we would just super glue ourselves to each other, then we would all be bonded. No, 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 no. I don't recommend that. But he is telling us what the glue is. He says we keep the unity of the Spirit by using the bond or the bonding agent of peace. When we choose to walk in love and we choose just to bear with one another, we are protecting peace. And he says peace is that, can I say, glue that helps hold a relationship together. Now, it's true of church relationships. It's true of family relationships. It's true of marriage relationships. It's true of all relationships. 
If people are involved, this is the truth. Peace is a bond that helps hold you together, especially when you have pressures trying to separate you. It's peace. Let's think about this. This would really fit with any relationship, but it really seems to get tangible if you've ever been in a marriage relationship. And you understand kind of where I'm going with this. But how many have you have learned by now? It's one of those life lessons that we've probably all learned. And if you haven't learned it, you need to because it applies to all relationships. But how many have learned that keeping peace is more important than winning the argument? It's quiet in here. (laughs) Ever thought about it? What's the goal of winning an argument? Well, some people would say, well, it's proving that I'm right. Did you know that winning an argument actually does not prove if you're right or not? Um, Being right will prove you're right. But you could actually win an argument and still be the one who's wrong. You could lose an argument and still be the one who's right. Winning or losing an argument does not define whether or not you are right. So why do we push so hard? Oh, I did it. Here it is again. It's our pride. We want to prove we're right because it feeds our pride. And so, so many times we push arguments to prove we're right. And when it's all said and done, all we've done is feed ego. It doesn't prove whether you're right or wrong. And we've hurt the relationship. We're weakening the relationship by damaging the peace. Because peace is the glue that holds us together. If I win an argument, but I've lost peace, I still lose. Are you with me? Hmm. So many times, it takes a level of maturity to recognize the peace in my relationship with this person is more important than winning an argument. If I'm right, time will prove it. I don't have to beat them up to prove it. I'm going to protect the relationship and protect the peace that holds us together. And just let the argument end. We recognize what's more important. It's the same in church relationships. It's the same thing. Peace is the bonding agent that glues us together. It's the bonding agent for all human relationships. Let me give you another example. I'm telling you, peace is a bigger deal than I think we've recognized. Um, Ephesians chapter 6. In this passage, the Apostle Paul is talking about prayer. This is the passage you've probably heard many times. Put on the armor of God. He says in Ephesians 6.11, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And I'm I'm not going to read the whole thing. He goes on to talk about the helmet of salvation, the blessed blessed, breastplate of righteousness, (laughs) the belt of truth, the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit. I want to jump down to verse 15. Look at this one. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of what? What kind of gospel is, is going on your feet? It's the gospel of peace. Now, I'll take a step back for just a moment. When the Apostle Paul wrote this letter um, to the church at Ephesus, in that day, he was using a common known thing 
that everyone would understand. He was talking about Roman soldiers and the armor they would put on because Paul lived under the Roman Empire. The Ephesus church was under the Roman Empire. Much of the world was under the Roman Empire. And they all knew what a Roman soldier looked like. So we sometimes miss a little bit of it because we don't, we don't have that today. And the soldiers in our world don't look like the soldiers 2,000 years ago. It's, I want to say, a day and night difference. It's very different. Um, but if we went back and studied, here's what the shoes looked like on a Roman soldier. First off, they were made of brass. They were very hard. But they didn't stop at the ankle. They didn't cover just the top of the foot. They then turned into a cylinder and went up the leg to just above the knee. They were round and they were designed to protect not only the top of the foot, but they protected the shin and the calf. Um, the research I did, and you do got to think this is a soldier and this is hand-to-hand combat, a common tactic of that day in hand-to-hand combat, I want to say, kick them in the shin. But it's more than just so they go, ow. If you can attack hard enough in the shin, you'll break their leg. That was the goal. And if you're in hand-to-hand combat and you break their leg, what are they going to have trouble doing aside from pain? They can't stand anymore. They've just left one of two very important pieces of <laughs> tools. I don't want to say you break one or both legs. They can't stand anymore. You get them on the ground. Now you end them. <laughs> this is. I'm not suggesting we all go outside and try this, but th- this is this was war. This was soldiers of the day, and that was the tactic: was break a leg. So, as a defense to that tactic, they then had these shields over their shins, and it was a part of their shoe. It was considered a part of the shoe. That's on the top. What about the bottom? On the bottom, they had spikes. And this is a little more than golf spikes. This is a little more than baseball cleats. They were, depending on the soldier's preference or the terrain they were going to be fighting on, they were anywhere from one to three inches of spike. So on the defensive side of thing. You've got good footing. If you're trying to push or shove or fight or whatever you're doing, you've got good traction. Or if you want to, pick up a foot and you know have an offensive weapon. You can cause some damage when you've got three-inch spikes on the bottom of your feet. But all of this is in the shoe, can I say, of a Roman soldier. And this is the illustration. Paul says, having shod your feet... With the preparation of the gospel of peace. That word shod, nothing too crazy here. It's the Greek word hupodeo, compound word from hupo, which means under, and deo, which means to bind. No big surprise here. Binding something very tightly on the underside of your feet. Okay. So he says the gospel of peace is what we're binding to our feet. And so a couple of things we would say, he he does say bind very tightly so we could say that the shoes of peace are not loose fitting. We wrap ourselves up very tightly and very on purpose in peace. And they give us firm footing. But the second thing then, these shoes are very effective at putting the enemy where he belongs. Where does scripture say the devil belongs? Under our feet. What's one of the ways you keep him under your feet? 
well, having spikes under your feet might help. But what is, what is on our feet then? It's the gospel of peace. Peace is one of the ways when we determine to wrap ourselves in peace, to keep our inner man in peace, to maintain peace in us and in our relationships, we are very quickly putting the devil in his place and keeping him under our feet where he cannot cause division in our relationships. On a grand scale, why is there so much chaos in our nation right now? He's attacking the relationships in this nation. He's trying to divide, to weaken. Because he's, can I say it this way? He's attacking the glue that holds this country together. That's the big picture. Small picture, it works on every human relationship. But peace is how we protect it. And then I want to kind of real quickly go back to that other passage we looked at last week. Um, Philippians chapter 4 verse 6 he says be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus I don't know if I pointed this out last week that word guard means to mount guard as a sentinel or military guard it means to keep or protect with a garrison. It's a military term. Um, so all of this under the umbrella of peace. Peace is the glue. Peace is the guard that protects us. Peace is the, the bonding agent. It's all these things together. Let me go one more piece and I'm going to come to an illustration then. Um, Colossians chapter 3 verse 15. Apostle Paul says here, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. So one last piece here, a descriptor of peace, is to rule in our heart. That word rule there is a Greek word, braboeo. Um, I'm not going to give a definition, I'm going to give you an application. In Paul's day, that word, here this translated rule, that was the word they used to describe um, the sporting events of that day. The big one was really what we know as modern day Olympics. Um, that was a really big thing in their culture. And if I'm saying this right, braboeo was the word used to describe the Olympic officials. Um, you know, I want to use terms like the umpire, the referee, but the umpires like baseball, referees basketball, and maybe football. What do they use for the the? Who does that in the Olympics? <laughs> Are they just Olympic officials? Is that all they call them? Judges. The judges. That'll work. Thank you. That's what that word means. It's the judges in the Olympics, and he says, "Let the peace of God." Let's use that word, judge, in your heart. Let the peace of God rule. And what does the judge do? He rules what's allowed and what's not. No, that was a good play. No, that was a foul. Yes, you're safe. No, you're out. That's what the judge, the umpire, the referee, that's what they're doing. That's what this word means. He says, let the peace of God, can I say it this way, call the shots in your heart. Let the peace of God determine what goes and what doesn't. What's allowed and what's not. Let the peace of God rule in you. Um, let it referee when it comes to emotions. 
and decisions and decision making. It's the peace of God. Okay, now I'm going to come to my illustration. But you remember the account? I'm now, I'm in the ministry of Jesus and I'm early in his ministry because this happened more than once. This was one of the earlier times when he had been ministering. The day's over. We're tired. It's time to go home. And he gets everybody in a boat and he says, head over. Um, I, I didn't check to see for sure if they're heading to Capernaum or not, but he's saying, get in the boat. Let's go to the other side. Day's over. I'm tired. All right. And that's what's going on here. In fact, in this particular case, he pulled rank. He said, I've been working hard all day. You guys row. I'm going to sleep. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. I'm looking in Mark chapter 4, and I'm going to start reading in verse 35. On the same day when the evening had come, he said to them, let's cross over to the other side. Now, when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. So there's a little fleet. And a great windstorm arose, and waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. Now, I'm, I don't know for 100% sure, but I've, I've dug into a little bit of what historians tell us. In Jesus' day, the most common boats, especially on the Sea of Galilee and in that region, were fishing boats. Um, and the average fishing boat back then was about 27 feet long, about um, 7 feet wide, and 4 feet deep. Um, so they say, really, your capacity is about 15 people. Um, so they probably didn't have that. But theoretically, you could get all 12 disciples and Jesus in one boat. Don't know that they were. It says there were other boats, so they may be spread out. But they're not big boats. In By today's standard, that's a small boat. Might have been big in, by their standard. I don't know. But... So say 27 feet long, 7 feet wide, 4 feet deep. They're going across the Sea of Galilee, and a storm comes up. The waves must be raging pretty good because they're crashing over the side of the boat, and Scripture tells us they're taking on water. The disciples are now fearful, convinced it's a very real possibility we're going to die. And I like to remind us that it's not because they're just a bunch of, you know, weak guys or inexperienced, they were anything but. At least half of those disciples grew up on the water. Their families were fishing families. They were fishermen when Jesus came along and said, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. They knew the waters. They knew the boats. Probably as kids, their dads and uncles and grandpa took them out on the water and taught them how to fish. Probably not the first storm they've been in. They are as experienced as you could be in this day. And yet they are filled with fear and are convinced we're about to die. So it must have been a pretty serious storm and the boat is taken on water. All that to say then, something that kind of amazes me, in that situation, do you really think you could sleep? Jesus is asleep. He's in the back of the boat on a pillow, and he's out. And I'm thinking, okay, number one, this isn't that big of a boat, and it does sound like they're that big of waves. So this boat is not still. It's rocking. It's riding the waves. It's moving around, water splashing. So if anything, you're being jostled. Two, it had to be noisy. I'm, I'm imagining, if nothing else, you have a storm, which means winds are blowing, Probably raining, which isn't helping. 
And then the disciples who are rowing and, you know, scooping water out and trying to get to the other side, they're not all just whispering to not wake Jesus. Hey, scoop the water out. No, they're probably yelling. And not just because they're excited, they're going to have to yell to be heard and understood over the noise of the storm itself. So there, I just can't imagine this was a quiet event. And yet, Jesus is sound asleep. He's out. They had to wake him. It's just, that's amazing to me. I wonder if that in and of itself is not an example of the power of peace. No matter what the world's doing around him, he's at peace. He literally, he's asleep. Um, so then, the next thing that's interesting to me is that the disciples had to wake him up. And in one sense, just that, that they had to. <laughs> he did not wake up on his own. But what's interesting is how they did it. How they did it is a little telling. It's one thing to wake up someone and do it gently, politely, to go to, to Jesus. And, and they could have said, Jesus, we have a bit of a situation here. We could use some help if you could find time to give us a hand. There, there would have been ways to do it politely. What's interesting to me is that's not how they did it. I'm going to jump around these verses a little bit, but I want to look at verse 38. He, Jesus, was in the stern asleep on a pillow, and they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Now, it's not that they woke him. It's in the words they chose to speak what are they doing? Do you not care that we're dying here? What do you call that? That's a guilt trip. They're trying to manipulate Jesus. They chose their words in a way to try and make him feel guilty that he's asleep and they're all dying. Questioning his love. Don't you care? We're all dying here. Trying to make him feel guilty. That's devilish. Your heavenly father will never use guilt trips and try to shame you into his desired behavior. He does not operate that way. And that is demonic to do that. Don't you care about us? It's almost like they're expecting Jesus to apologize. I am so sorry. Oh, I had no idea. Please, let me fix this situation. Not cool. So they're saying, don't you care? How did he respond to them? Again, I'm jumping a verse. But how did he respond to the disciples who just tried to shame him? He rebuked them. Look at verse 40. He said to them... <laughs> Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? He called them on the carpet. Isn't it interesting now? The order's different. 
but the principles are the same. It would be later when Jesus looked at them and said, uh, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. It was just as true back in chapter 4 of Mark. I'm quoting that verse in 14 of John, which was almost two or more years later. But the principle is the same. It was his teaching all along. He says, uh, why are you so full of fear? How is it you have no faith? What did he equate their chaos with? Lack of faith. What did he expect them to be in peace like he was? You're going to find that faith and peace go hand in hand. They work together. If you are genuinely in faith in a situation, you will likewise be in peace. Why? Because you're trusting him. If you're wound up and chaotic and angry and all kinds of worked up, you won't be in faith either. Faith and peace work together. Mm. Okay, so in the middle of the storm, they wake him up. And how does he respond then about the storm? Not to the disciples, but he dealt with the storm actually first. I got my verses out of order. Did Jesus wake up and see the storm raging and water in the boat and yell, Oh dear God, why didn't you wake me up sooner? <laughs> no. Did he jump up and say, Have no fear. The Son of God is here. Well, no, he didn't do that either. But what did he do? Verse 39. He arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. So look at it from the point of view of Jesus. He was in peace even in the midst of the storm. And then he stood up from a position of peace and commanded peace into his circumstances. And his circumstances obeyed. Isn't that interesting? Which entirely freaked out the disciples. They had not seen a level of faith like this before. Look at verse 41. And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and sea obey him? I mean, it's just... Oh, that's horrible. This just rocked their boat. <laughs> but it did. It did. The whole experience was just over the top. They had This was early in Jesus' ministry. Give them another couple of years of walking with Jesus? <laughs> no. Didn't, didn't rock their world anymore. There's a whole new way of living. But this was early on. They hadn't seen anything like this before. So now, from this story, let me make this statement then. A man who is able to command peace in his environment is a man who is not under the control of his environment. Are you seeing that? Whatever ruffles you, whatever has the ability to get you wound up and worked up and out of peace, has control over you. When you have the ability to maintain peace, you are maintaining control. That's what we see in Jesus. He was surrounded by all the same circumstances the disciples were. 
In the disciples' case, the storm was in control. In Jesus' case, Jesus was in control. And the difference was peace. Are you with me? You cannot bring peace into a situation unless you yourself are in peace. And I know some people will be tempted to say, no, 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 no. Jesus was able to do that because he was Jesus. We are not Jesus. And we cannot be expected to do what Jesus did. If that was true, then his rebuke of the disciples was unfair. He did not give them a pass. He said, why are you so afraid? Where's your faith? How is it you have no faith? What's the implication? You should have handled this and not woken me up. I'm tired. That's, that's what's going on. He says, you should have done this. I mean, it, it just it overwhelmed them. Then they got it eventually. But see, he didn't give them a pass. He did not just say, here I am to save the day. No, he said, why didn't you take care of this? I'm going back to sleep. You didn't preach all day. I did. I'm tired. You deal with it. That's what's going on. The fact that he turned and rebuked them tells us he expected them to handle it. So I'm going to bring us into a close here this morning. I want to go and read it again. I know we've, I've referenced it. We read it last week, but I want to see it again. John 14, 27. Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. It's a commodity. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. I want to begin to ask the question as we close then. All right. But how do we walk in that kind of peace? How do we do that? I want to quote Psalm 119, verse 165. It's a long psalm. It says, Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. Who has great peace? The ones who love God's law or God's word. And nothing causes them to stumble. Isn't it interesting? I said earlier, peace and faith go hand in hand. How does faith come? By hearing the word. How does peace come? Kind of the same way. You want to walk in great degrees of peace? Have a great love for God's word. Are you seeing it? A person who is always upset and always wound up and always in chaos and just worked up by the circumstances around him based on that psalm is the person who doesn't love God's Word. Are you seeing it? Great peace have those who love your law. We're going to find peace by spending time in His Word. So this would be a case if you want a little bit of peace in your life then have a little bit of God's Word. Do I recommend that? No. We have a lot of chaos in this world around us, and I don't think a little bit of peace is enough. I recommend get a lot of God's Word. Develop a great love for God's Word. Why? You're going to need a lot of peace for the world we're living in. 
These storms are getting bigger. How do we stay in control? We stay in peace. Where does that peace come from? A lot of God's Word. <laughs> um, Isaiah 26.3 You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. That's the part of guarding your heart. Not letting everything around you get you worked up. But what? Let not your heart be troubled. You just keep peace in your heart. Keep your mind on God's word. Keep your mind on God. And he keeps you in perfect peace. Um, I want to read that same verse in the Amplified. You will guard him and keep him in perfect and constant peace whose mind, both its inclination and its character, is stayed on you because he commits himself to you, leans on you, and hopes confidently in you. That's what Peter was talking about. That's where we started this morning. You're not fully clothed. You're not properly adorned. You're not in right order unless you have this peace in your inner man. Amen? Amen.